I think you just have to understand that it's like the price of leadership or people are going to be critical and value that. Like, I don't want people to tell me things are working if they're not. And I hope people are reasonable and understanding that we don't have perfect utopian amount of resources. And so when we approach something, that's why that communication up front really matters, I think, uh, about, hey, here's what we're trying to do. Here's why. Here's, you know, here's the other things we looked at before we thought this might be the right approach. What do you think about this? And normally, a lot of times things get improved and informed for the better on that journey to getting them done. Welcome. I'm your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. Last week, we talked to Erin Sharoni about how she found her passion in a third career in science after spending over 10 years on Wall Street and as a sports anchor on TV. Erin now is the Chief Product Officer at Foxotech, so we also had a deep conversation on epigenetics and various applications of the science of longevity. Today, we explore a completely different field, public service, and I'm going to share with you what I share with my guests before we started our interview. It is very easy and popular to blame politicians for everything, but I have a personal belief that over the past 40 years, we have done a disservice to ourselves and to society by devaluing politicians while glamorizing business leaders. As a result, the majority of the best minds of my generation have chosen not to enter public service. The reality is that governing, running a city, a state, or a country is an increasingly complex job, and we do need specialists who are experts at the job and passionate about public service if we want our society to thrive. Kim Driscoll is currently the mayor of Salem, and she's one of three Democratic candidates to become the lieutenant governor of Massachusetts. We met at an event where my wife was playing, and I was incredibly impressed with her. I felt that she came very close to be my ideal of a public servant. She's smart, she's pragmatic, and she's truly following her calling. For this reason, not only I asked her to be on the show, but in full transparency, I will vote for her in our primary and then in the general election. This interview is focused more on Kim's journey and her experience in public service than her campaign. So even if you don't agree with her politics, I encourage you to listen because you will find a lot of helpful and practical advice. And now to the episode. Kim, welcome to the show. And I'm going to start with the first question that I normally ask all my guests. Tell us about yourself and where your journey started and, and what led you to choose at some point to enter into public service. Yeah, Dino, thanks so much for having me on and for giving, you know, individuals a chance to share their journey and talk about like, sort of what motivates them, what their passion is. I think understanding that is really helpful, especially when it comes to public service, like what's grounding people, I think is really critical, sometimes even more so than where you might stand on a specific issue that is going to be important at the time, but certainly not throughout time. I feel fortunate that I'm a Navy brat. I was born in Hawaii, lived all over. Uh, my dad grew up in Lynn, Massachusetts, uh, north of Boston City, pretty, you know, pretty hardworking, kind of hard scrabble community. And my mom is from Trinidad. They met when he was in service. And my family moved, like most military families, you know, when you get stationed, you're moving every three to five years. So we were in Newport, we were in Columbia, Maryland, we were in Florida, we were in lots of different locations. I came to Salem to go to college and just fell in love with, with the city, with Massachusetts, with my husband, who was attending college as well. And never left, had an opportunity to work in local government really early in my career, starting out as an intern, 
and just fostered this understanding. Neither of my parents were super political at all, but this experience, you know, really gave me an understanding of what makes a difference in your community. Like, how does your city or town tick? You know, it's based on what's happening in city halls and town halls, you know, across every community. And I just got this thirst for if you really love where you live and you want to make a meaningful impact in it, like how do you give back? And and local government is that branch that most people rely on the most, you know, educating your kids, keeping your neighborhood safe, investing in those places where you make memories, you know, hoping to have economic opportunities in, in communities and so I really sunk my teeth and got to work in, in local government first as an urban planner and then worked in, in cities as they were coming out of receivership. And now I've been mayor in Salem for 16 years, really fortunate to be leading and uh, living in a great city and want to help other cities accelerate and amplify the work they're doing. And that's why I'm running for lieutenant governor. That's great. And I, we've had uh, a lot of conversation with my guests around the idea that when you're young, people tell you to follow your passion. But. It's not that easy to find your passion right away. I'm curious, what drew you initially to, you know, urban planning, to working for the city? Was there something that was at your interest or was it more like an opportunity out of college? You know, I think it was a little bit of both, right? It was an, a paid internship. So that's always helpful when you're a college kid. And then two... It, I saw what was happening behind the scenes, what led to a park getting improved, you know, how individuals living in their community might call up and have needs and that you could actually resolve them. Somebody had a question about what was happening with a particular project or what could we do about the state of the library that needs to be improved. And then you could see it through to action where people would sink their teeth in and really and really work together. The one compelling piece about government, particularly local government, especially in towns, you know, when you have town meeting and, and lots of volunteers is it, it's really an opportunity for community members to sort of coalition build for something they want to see in, in their community happen, whether it's improving a school, fixing a park, addressing a, a litter problem. It's not just, hey, hey, your government, fix it. Hey, mayor, hey, city council, make this better. It's a collection of people who are coming together that are saying, we want to address a need in our community. And that's where the magic really happens. Now, there's lots of fighting and, you know, it can take longer and it's bureaucracy. There's all of that too. But the magic when you have an aligned vision and you're working arm in arm to achieve it, it's pretty special. Government is a, is a branch of human activities that requires probably a lot more skills to get to agreement and then to move decisions into implementation. What were some of the early lessons for you as you were progressing from intern to urban planner, like what really what it took to get decisions made? You know, one thing that strikes me is local government, generally local government in all places is nonpartisan. So we didn't have the bickering between do you have an R or a D or whatever, you know, alphabet <laughs> next to your name. So I can't, I can't agree with you because you're an R. I can't agree with you because you're a D. We didn't have that. And I think that's why I was called local government, the get stuff done branch. Like there's a pothole. It's not Republican or Democrat. It's a pothole that needs to get fixed. And I think that fosters certainly a way to, to bring people together differently without the baggage that might come with folks who are, want to be partisan. And that certainly is my lens. Look, I'm a proud Democrat. I really appreciate those Democratic values. And I aspire to insert those into the work that we're doing. But at the end of the day, people expect government to solve problems, whether you have a D or an R next to your name. So I, I want to make sure I like put that out there because I think it makes it a little bit easier at the local level in some ways. The counter to that, though, is when you're operating local government, you're making decisions for people you're going to see the next day, right? Neighbors, friends, they have entrusted you 
with this representative democracy model. I'm not going to have the time to invest in understanding what we should, you know, what we should budget for or how we should, you know, move forward within our schools. But I'm entrusting you to do all that homework, to really dig in and understand what's in the best interest of our community. And then let's work together to achieve it. And I think lessons for me are getting that buy-in early is so critical to making sure at least people understand what you're hoping to have for an outcome and being open and transparent. We try lots of things in local government. Some of them are going to work. Some of them are not. We try to be upfront because it's not my money. It's all of our, you know, it's our neighbor's money. And it's not people that are anonymous souls. They're folks that I'm going to see the next day that I deeply care about. So it makes me a little bit more accountable to the decision making and the decision making process. Ultimately, yes. You know, we all see that there's a pothole that needs to be fixed, but there may be a pothole on my street and then there'll be a pothole on another street. And then ultimately, there may be money to fix only one pothole. You know, what are some of the, as I said, the lessons and qualities that help move things along with your peers and colleagues? Yeah. And I mean, look, there are definitely stressors when you, when you talk about limited resources and lots of challenges that you have. And so you try and agree, have some consensus on, hey, how are we going to set priorities? You know, maybe we're you know, with lots of streets and roadways and sidewalks that need to get upgraded. We're doing triage. What are the worst ones? How are we attacking them first? Oh, we're not going to do yours. It's really bad because we know the gas line's coming in, you know, just in, in a few months. And so we're, we don't want to spend money now on that and then have it be, you know, disrupted again. So I, I think the compelling part about that is, one talking communication. <laughs> I'm not doing it because I don't like you, or I'm not doing it because uh, of some other factor. We're going to be grounded in not having politics drive it. I'm not doing it because it's my friend who lives on that street, right? I really want to have a master plan for how we're going to attack our roads. And then you can see it. You can see where it is. You have an open sort of process that allows everyone to buy into you know, how we're approaching a particular uh, problem we're trying to solve. And that helps. And there are still fistfights, not in the literal sense, but in the sense of people who disagree. I mean, that's normal part of, you know, governing and, and you have to expect that's going to happen. It's not personal. It's just we might have a different approach to something. And when did you start thinking about who you were as a civic leader and what were the qualities that you were trying to model and, you know, how to embrace it? And were there people who were mentors or inspirations to you? And what did you learn from them? You know, really great question. You know, I had the good fortune of working in the city of Chelsea when they came out of receivership. This was a city just immediately north of Boston. Had The last five mayors had either gone to jail or lost their ticket to practice law. Like a lot of, of corruption and lack of accountability. And at some point, they just couldn't meet payroll and pay their bills. And the state came in and took them over. And as they were coming out of receivership, they formed a whole new style of government. They got rid of a mayor city council, went to a city manager. And I was hired as in-house legal counsel as they were coming out of this, this receivership and then became their deputy city manager. And why that was so critical, because in some ways, like time had stood still in Chelsea, the things that may have been going on 50 years ago and other places were still happening there. And who was paying the price for sort of failures in leadership? We're the most vulnerable people in the community. You know, uh, it had always been a city where immigrants were, were hardworking people, were trying to get by, have their piece of the American dream. And that was completely disrupted, everything from schools, you know, to public safety, because there were these failures in leadership and maybe grafting and other things like that going on. And that taught me really the value of good government. And when you don't have it, like who pays the price for that? And you know, also recognize that it can be lonely, right? If you're going to do things the right way. And I always say, if you want to sleep at night, don't do anything you don't want to read about in the newspaper. And that were some of the beginnings. The city manager, the first city manager 
for the city of Chelsea was a guy by the name of Guy Sanagate. He had grown up in Chelsea. He had served on the board of assessors. I think he was witness to everything that had gone wrong. And now he was came in as both a healer and a reformer in this city to make sure as things move forward, everything was going right. Um, there used to be a saying that Chelsea was like a recovering alcoholic. You know, you couldn't get caught in a bar. So we did things even, you know, I would say, at a higher scale than we had to. We bid things we didn't have to bid because we never wanted to go back. You know, we, we really took very seriously the idea of professionalizing government. And um, I was pleased to be a part of it, a team that helped bring in renewed investment, renewed engagement with residents, and renewed accountability. It was a really special time for me, certainly as a young professional, trying to understand uh, both how to operate and how to operate in a way that's going to bring progress to a community. Was there like a moment that was like a particularly challenging situation that you had to navigate and how was that situation maybe what you learned from it yeah you know i think that chelsea at that time was beginning an engagement process with residents i remember uh they're part of the mwra and there was a really large water and sewer increase coming tied to work i mean big something 12 15 16 percent increase which is not you know insignificant so we're having a public hearing to talk about this water and sewer increase like really prepared lots of presentations know we're going to get tons of questions and nobody showed up at the public hearing like nobody uh, and i thought if this was any other community the community that i lived in i was living in salem people would have been there with pitchforks right and it struck me in two ways one that we were almost like loco parenti at that point the city hadn't fully you know, come back around from an engagement perspective. They were still really wounded from receivership. And we, what we did really mattered in terms of the success of that community. And two, we never need to have another public hearing where nobody shows up. How are we investing in building leaders among community members? It shouldn't be up to just hopefully we have good people in government. I think we do. We have a lot. But there is a role. Democracy is, you know, a contact sport. It's two, it's two people. You really got to engage. And when when government's there talking about doing something that should evoke some kind of a response and the other, the other side of the equation isn't present, that's a problem, right? So we really invested in a lot of leadership building, community organizing, so that we're not telling people what to do or what to think, but empowering them to be a participant you know, in this, in this work. And what are some of the examples of the programs, if, if you think about you know, how to, in a situation to go from a community that is not showing up to a community that decides to participate? And maybe what are some of the lessons that can be drawn out of that, you know, even from people that are moving in situations that are not public service, but where they need to re-engage a party that, as you said, has been wounded? Yeah, I mean, I think there's no substitute for getting on the ground. There were some great organizations in Chelsea. They still exist. La Collaborativa, uh, you know, organizations that throughout COVID, we really saw the strength of having people, green roots, you know, community organizations on the ground that were building up people, that were engaging young people, that were recognizing that you have a voice, you know, especially in large immigrant communities where they may come from countries and circumstances where you really don't have a voice. It's empowering people. So we had um, what we called citizenship accounts. It's not tied to like citizenship, you know, within the United States, but tied to what it means to be a resident of Chelsea and how you can become engaged. How do you get signed up for, you know, information that can come to you via email, via text, so you can know whether it's a snow emergency that might be happening or an important meeting in your neighborhood? Um, and I think the other part of that was we also took on the responsibility. When I don't have people showing up at a meeting, 
then maybe we did something wrong. Did we not get the information out? You know, if we can't communicate with people and meet them where they are, meaning in their appropriate language, hold a meeting, not in the middle of the day when they may not be available. There's a responsibility on the part of those of us governing to ensure that we're not just, well, I sent out a survey, nobody responded. <laughs> like, no, what, how do we dig deeper, work on the ground with community organizations to ensure that we're making those connections and that they're sustainable. They're not one-offs just for this one project. As you're talking about all this work within the city of Chelsea, these were all up to this point, these were all appointed roles, right? Correct. What made you decide to make the jump into sort of the elected path? You know, how does that happen for somebody to decide to get involved in politics? You know, for me, um, I was living in Salem, working in Chelsea and seeing opportunities here. I think when you talk to women candidates in particular, there was a panel of uh, a dozen women mayors who, well, we had a dozen women mayors at one point who were all on a stage together. And this question was asked, like, tell us about your journey. How did you enter? And for so many of us, it was sort of like, I was sick and tired and I couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> like I was on the sidelines. And I thought I could, you know, I had skills or something I could lend that would be helpful. And I think that's certainly true in my case. I saw immense opportunities in Salem, a, a city that has an embarrassment of riches when it comes to history and just things here that were real strong suits that we, we, weren't, we weren't amplifying, we weren't leaning into. And um, I remember vividly saying to my husband, I think I have something to offer here. I'd really like, they didn't, we don't have a city manager in Salem, but I'd really want to have a meaningful impact on this place. I want to quit my job and run for mayor. And he was just very supportive. And, you know, had he said, eh, I don't know about that. We had three kids at the point. At that point. I think it may have been a different outcome, but he didn't. So it's, you know, also having people in your life who are supporting you and helping you get to where you want to go. But in this instance, it was really, I think I have something to offer. And I was on the sidelines watching my community not maximize the opportunities it had here. The process of running for office also requires like a completely new skill set that is not required in other places. How did you start thinking about what else you needed in order to be successful in that process and to make the decision to actually tackle that? Yeah, it's really interesting you raise that because I talk a lot about that even now on this race for lieutenant governor. There's campaigning and there's governing. Like campaigning, you know, requires money and stamina and connecting with people and getting your message out. Governing is a different skill set, to be quite honest, and how you govern, how you bring people together, build coalitions, and then implement the work. It's always messier, like the blocking and tackling of governing. It's usually not sexy, but it's really important to doing the things that really matter on what people rely on, those delivery of basic services, and then also being sort of innovative and forward thinking and creating space for that to happen. For me, I think some of it was just talking about a community you love, right? So <laughs> campaigning to me was saying, hey, I think that we could be better. Here are some of the ideas that I have, how we could professionalize what we're operating on, how we could be more open and transparent, and how, frankly, we can take advantage of our history and our seaport and things at the time that, uh, you know, Salem was a little bit of an old boys network. You know, it was, it was, you know, who you knew is how you got your street paved. And if you wanted to get on a border commission, like you had to know the mayor or city councilor. And, and I just knew that government didn't have to operate that way and being able to talk about it. And frankly, kudos to residents here who were ready for that. I mean, Salem had never had a woman mayor and had never had a mayor who did not grow up in that in this community. So it was somewhat big to overcome that. And uh, it was talked about openly at the time, which is, is, is kind of crazy to me now. But that's, you know, Kim's really smart. She's really good. But 
you know, we're not ready for a woman. Those were often comments made. And I think the voters sort of said, no, 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 we, we want somebody good. And, uh, or we want somebody who's got skills. And thankfully, it really worked out in my favor. And it's been my like incredible honor to represent neighbors and friends and trying to do things that improve the place that we collectively really appreciate. I didn't even think about that aspect. There's a component of running for office that involves opening yourself up for difficult conversations, if you will, that you may not, and, and difficult conversation, not in a positive way. How do you think about that? And how did you prepare yourself for that? Yeah, you know, I think if you are somebody who can't handle criticism, like governing is not a good job for you, because it goes or, you know, just about any leadership position, but particularly in governing, I always say I have a 45,000 member board of directors, right? Every resident here has a right to weigh in on what they like and what they don't like. And you can do that in a lot of different ways now with social media and, and the onslaught of, of ways to communicate. So I think you just have to understand that it's like the price of leadership or people are going to be critical and value that. Like, I don't want people to tell me things are working if they're not. And I hope people are reasonable in understanding that we don't have perfect utopian amount of resources. And so when we approach something, that's why that communication up front really matters, I think, uh, about, hey, here's what we're trying to do. Here's why. Here's, you know, here's the other things we looked at before we thought this might be the right approach. What do you think about this? And normally, a lot of times things get in, improved and informed for the better on that journey to getting them done. And in my estimation, like the worst thing we can do sometimes is do nothing, because there are always going to be, you know, great taste, less filling, right? And at some point, and people have elected me in that position to sort of, okay, we're going to make that decision. The buck stops with me. Ultimately, I've got to be the one to say go or no go on things. And I, I, I think that's really important. And with that is going to come somebody who thinks you didn't do it the right way. So you got to prepare for it. I think listening to it and trying to be self-reflective, but not letting it drive how you're going to approach things is really key. You need to find the balance in that role between listening so that you're taking in the lessons that you need and make the adjustment you need, but also listening only up to a certain point. How does one find that balance and how long does it take before you're in a place where you're really comfortable that you're in the right spot? Yeah, I mean, I, that's like the secret sauce, right? For me, it's having really competent, like qualified people around me. Like we will duke it out in senior staff meetings about policies and approaches and really, you know, have an open discussion around the pros and cons, right? The pros and cons. And if we do this, then that. And, you know, what does this mean on a larger scale? What does this mean on a smaller scale? Um, and then move forward and, and have more people, uh, you know, once the decision's been made, this is what we're doing, you know, let's, let's lean into it. And th that for me is like my balancing act, knowing that it's not just a bunch of yes people around you saying, okay, it's a great idea. Let's all do it. No, let's, let's poke it around a little. What's, you know, what's the downside on this? What could the outcome be? That's not what we expected. What are the unintended consequences that we need to prepare for or try and inoculate ourselves from? You know, it takes a little bit longer. I learned that lesson early in my career. Like, what is the old African proverb? If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And so impatience can be a good thing. And impatience can also um, lead to things not happening the way you want them to be or not having enough people bought in to a really good idea. So that's actually interesting because my next question was going to be about how you think about your leadership style, who you want to be as a leader. And then from then going into... You know, you have to assemble two probably different 
leadership teams under you because one is the campaigning team and one is the governing team. And in the governing team, you don't have a say on everybody that's part of the team. So how would you define your leadership style? And then what qualities are you find looking for in the people that you want to bring in into your teams? Yeah, I definitely want to answer that. But I'd also say if you get the governing right, the campaigning is always easier, right? You know, if you're successful at governing and understanding the needs of your community and meeting them, then the campaigning piece is a little bit easier. Uh, But the type of people you want around you, like smart, committed, high integrity, folks who aren't always 100% aligned with your thinking, but are really good experts in that particular area or field they're working in. And I think collaboration is really key in government as well. You know, you're not just a public services director or a public safety leader. You know, you have to take other skill sets and being able to have honest conversations. You know, I played hoop in college and the best teams I had didn't always have, you know, five superstars, but they had people who knew how to work together. right? And I think that's really really critical when you think about a leadership team in an organization as well. You you might have somebody who's really good at a skill set, but do they have somebody under them that's good at, you know, communicating it out better because maybe that's not their skill set and being able to have like honest dialogue uh, about how a division head might be building out their team to address their strengths and their challenges. And then wanting, again, just really high quality people around you, hard workers, high integrity, and any kind of subject matter expertise that are able to be collaborative is key. And I benefited from, you know, a leadership model like that in Chelsea. I was a young lawyer and we used to have really hard discussions. We're recodifying ordinances. We're, we're educating and teaching a community what it meant. This style of government meant different from what the government they had before. We're trying to engage residents. We're trying to work with city councilors and, and trying to advance the work. And it can be messy, right? <laughs> and, and being able to recognize sometimes it's going to be messy and still being able to move forward, I think is really critical. I always say I hire good people and I get out of the way and I let them do their work. And that was how the experience I had when I worked in Chelsea, hire good people, set the values, and then get out of the way and let them do their work. That's great. And I was thinking about, you know, the fact you mentioned you led a very itinerant life before you settled back into Lynn. And it's kind of fascinating that somebody who had this experience of living all over the place ends up being so grounded into being local and connected to a community. What do you think you brought into who you are right now from your experiences, you know, resettling every few years? For me, I think when I settled in Salem, I felt very welcome. I felt like I right away knew the inside stuff, like where, when to get to Red Sandwich Shop so you wouldn't have to wait in line. I, I uh, had really close friends here who had grown up in Salem. And so got to know, you know the place in a different way, m- very much through a, through a local's eyes and opportunities. And I really very much wanted that for my kids. Like, uh, you know, my husband had groomsmen in our wedding that he had known since kindergarten. I thought, isn't that great? (laughs) You actually knew the same people from the time you were five years old. Like, that just isn't the life that you have. Um, So definitely wanted that for our family. And not that, by the way, I loved, you know, my life. Certainly, I had three sisters and we moved around a lot, lots of different adventures and experiences. So I think there's something for that. Um, but I will say that it, for me, it was always wanting to make sure people felt welcome. And that's what happened here in Salem. You didn't, when you're the new kid a lot, you know what those first few days are like, okay, I'm trying to size up this place, you know, who, who might be somebody that could be a friend or that you're going to get to know and you make connections and you know that, you know, it's probably not going to be forever. So you recognize that 
And I think for me, the values that I really have are Salem is a, you know, a city that's nearly 400 years old now. Lots of different immigrants, waves from waves of different countries that have come here and wanting to make sure people here felt welcome. Like, you know, immigrants were part of the growth and success of our community. As the daughter of an immigrant, my mom, as I said, was from Trinidad, really grew up in a bicultural family where very accepting, very welcoming. Uh, and that is certainly ingrained in who I am and how I lead both from that experience as a military family who moved around a lot and recognizing the strength of the livability with people from different backgrounds, different cultures, different languages, it makes the city more livable in many respects. And how do we celebrate that? Not look at it like a detriment, but look at it like a positive. That's great. Now, you spent all this time in local government, you're very passionate about local government, and now you're running for an office that many people say that the lieutenant governor in Massachusetts doesn't have a big role. You know, you've gone from like making things happen. What is the attractiveness of that role to you? Yeah, such a good question. And I feel like in any organization, you have a team of people, whether it's, you know, working in Chelsea or Salem or any private sector organization, the CEO doesn't do anything by themselves, right? They've got a strong team of people around them. In this case, this lieutenant governor role, not only I think can be, you know, a real ally supporter and, you know, key part of the team for a governor who's got a large state agenda with lots of, uh, I like to say, birds in the nest, right? People who need services, attention, and doing important work. And you're going to be the lieutenant governor. So a real opportunity to influence that agenda and to help with implementing it. Now, while there isn't necessarily a, an official role, meaning you, you, you chair the local government advisory council, you chair the governor's council, you chair the seaport advisory council. So there's some formal roles. The rest of that time is really spent for the last two administrations being a key uh, liaison to communities. The work of local government really matters to the quality of life to residents throughout the Commonwealth. How do we strengthen it? How do we make sure they have the supports they need? How do we amplify the things that are working and lead to innovation in places that might be struggling with that? So I hope is in this role to really champion uh, the work of cities and help in a different way. It's one thing to really be concerned about your own hometown, which certainly I am. It's another thing to work throughout the Commonwealth in a way that's going to amplify the work in hometowns and within the 351 cities and towns. So I think it's a powerful opportunity to really influence places on a larger scale, not in the same way as being the mayor and you know where the buck stops with you every day, but in a way that is a, on a broader scale. If you don't mind asking, is there, as you think about your career longer term, I know right now you're focused on actually first winning the nomination and then hopefully winning the role, but how do you think about your sort of career past that? Do you have bigger political aspirations in the long run? You know, I've always felt your best job security is doing a good job in your current position. And uh, I have not been very good at like coming up with 10-year plans, right? I've been mayor in Salem for 16 years. I don't think when I first ran for office, I said, I'm going to be mayor for 16 years. I just, I really felt like I had this great passion for the work, got up every day, excited to go to City Hall. And really, you know, there's always something on the to-do list. And I'm excited about this opportunity, sort of having this experience, turning around cities, working to make sure they're thriving. To think about a time where we have historic resources, you know, we've got nearly a $5 billion surplus right now in the state, not incorporating all of the federal funds that are coming. How do we put those dollars to good use for longer term economic prosperity? How do we hold ourselves accountable for making sure we're doing that? Those are things that, you know, programs that you undertake in local government a lot of the time, with not with that many resources, but th that approach. And I think the last piece is most of our challenges 
from housing to early childcare to the climate crisis to transportation, they require action in a city or town. Like we're not going to tackle the climate crisis or the housing crisis or the transportation challenges we have without action in a locality, in somebody's community. That's a language that I speak and one that I love. So I really feel like I can be a helpful partner to a Governor Healy in ensuring that we're using those dollars wisely, we're working with the legislature, and that we're impacting people's lives in a really positive way. That's great. So I'm going to close this part of the conversation. You've had a great run as a leader, as you mentioned, in local government and local service. If you were to think back at you know, what has helped you be successful and where to distill two or three leadership tips that people can apply in any areas of their professional life. What are the two or three most important things that you say people would use? I mean, I always say there's no substitute for hard work. I know that it sounds very cliche, but you got to put in the time. There's just no way to overcome putting that time in to the work that you have, whether it's the private sector or the public sector. People appreciate hard workers for sure, but you can't phone it in in a job like this or in you know any sort of leadership position for sure. So I think that's really critical. You know, two is surrounding yourself with people who are smarter than you. Like you don't have to have the monopoly on good ideas if you're in a leadership position. And in, and in fact, how do you create a culture? One of the things I'm really proud of in, in City Hall is this culture of continuous learning. Like we don't pick up trash the way we did 10 years ago. We don't solve crimes the way we did 10 years ago. Those aren't all coming from me at the top, but it's a culture of, hey, why don't we try something new? Hey, it might be more, you know, less expensive if we do something this way. And creating that culture among department heads, mid-managers, folks who understand we are looking to get better every day, I think is really, really critical. If you can do that in an organization, you're going to find a lot of good ideas and opportunities coming from people who work for you and rewarding that, right? And, and making sure people are thinking about that. And three is for me, not being afraid to fail up. If you are, if you want to welcome culture and innovation and, and that sort of forward thinking and trying new things, they're not all going to work. Uh, you're going to learn something from them and, and making sure you're approaching it in that way that we're going to try something, we're going to pilot something and not being afraid, especially in government, like nobody wants to pilot anything and have it be a disaster. But if you talk about it up front and why we're doing it and what we're going to learn from it, I think there is generally a reasonableness of understanding that, you know, we're trying to get better and we're not going to get better at a large scale until we maybe pilot some things at a smaller scale. So we're going to move to a little more of the personal side. Do you have a hobby or an interest outside of work and government that is important to you? And maybe how has that influenced the way that you work and govern? Yeah, this is super silly. And I have not been playing a lot of it during campaign season right now. But I love pickleball. I played hoop in college. But uh, my knees can't take playing basketball as much as uh, I would love to enjoy it. And so I, like so many across the Commonwealth and the country, have taken up pickleball, this funky racket sport, and have found it to be, for me, like lots of fun socially and a little bit of a workout and a chance to uh, still be competitive at something that's really a ton of fun. So uh, I'm looking forward to campaign season coming to a close and paying, playing more pickleball for my mental health. <laughs> I have a question that I ask everybody. It's possibly my favorite question in the podcast, and it is every era has cliches, you know, business cliches, jargon expressions that at some point become so trite that they make us crazy. What is the one cliche or expression that makes you crazy? Well, I have one that family members say all the time that drives me nuts, which is it is what it is. <laughs> Like, I feel like people apply that to everything. And what does that really mean? <laughs> That's a great answer. And then finally, I call this food for your body or food for your soul. And as I give my guests a chance to 
decide to share either a recipe or a drink that they go to or a book, piece of music, a movie, a play, a piece of art. So what is your, when you look for nourishment or comfort or inspiration? Yeah, for me, I don't know if this has to do with being born in Hawaii, but it's like a stroll along the water, like the coast, natural resources, getting out, you know, on the water, whether it's on land and enjoying it or in a boat. You know, we started a ferry service in Salem that goes back and forth between Boston. It is just, you know, immediate release of any tension you might have uh, getting out in the water for me. Really love that. That's great. Kim, thank you so much for agreeing to do this. It's been a pleasure to get to know you a little more and good luck in the next uh, few months. Thanks, Dino. Thanks so much. This was really introspective. Appreciate your interest and looking forward to a, a really strong finish to this campaign. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, find a friend who may enjoy it and tell them that they should listen to it. And if you really like the show, tell all your friends and post about it on social media. Everything helps. Make sure you subscribe to the show on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any episode when I release them. And if you listen on a platform that allows reviews like Apple Podcasts or Good Pods, please leave us a rating or a review. And remember, the best review left before the end of August will get a free copy of Susan Cataneo's album, All Is Quiet. And remember to stay tuned because at the end of the credit, I will pay one more song from that album. To learn more about Kim, go to kimdriscoll.org, spelled K-I-M-D-R-S-C-O-L-L.org. If you're interested in supporting her candidacy, on the site you will also find information on how to volunteer or make a donation to the campaign. You can find me online at al4ep.com with the number 4, and you can also email me at dino at al4ep.com. On Twitter and Instagram, look for at AL4EDP with the letter D. And you can find the show on Facebook at Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced, and arranged by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums, with Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. When I had to choose a song by Susan for this episode, it was really, really easy. As I mentioned, it's from the album All Is Quiet, and it's called Hold On To Hope. to bed
You're hanging on tight as you swing on a line caught in You've got to hold